I maintain that no matter what race you are, you cannot grow up in America and not have racial bias. Hey everyone, the episode that you are listening to or watching right now is actually pre-recorded. And I just wanted to jump on here to uh, introduce myself to some people who may be actually tuning into the podcast or watching for the very first time. My name is Jimmy Johnson. I host the show. And a little bit about the Stand of Course podcast. It's a show where we get to meet some of the most influential thought leaders around the globe and hear their stories. My hope is that you are inspired, uplifted, and motivated to fulfill your purpose and make a difference on this earth. Well, hey, in the current uh, time that we're living in right now, we're having lots of conversations about race and police injustice. And today we're going to have a conversation that's going to help us with racial reconciliation. I'm sitting down with Dr. Richard C. Harris. He's a professor. He's an author. He's a speaker and a former member and leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And you may be asking, well, Jimmy, why are you talking with a leader who formerly was affiliated with a hate group? Well, I believe Dr. Harris's story um, will help all of us understand some of the racial bias that we all have and also how we can look inside of ourselves and the systems that we work, the institutions that are built and we function in every single day to realize how we can make a difference and a change. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode of the Stay in the Course podcast. Dr. Harris, uh, set the scene for us. Take us to Kokomo, Indiana, where you were born and raised. I want to learn more about your upbringing. Certainly. Uh, I, was, I was born and reared in a pretty much all-white environment. Uh, I, I grew up in an elementary school, went to an elementary school that was completely segregated from grades one through five, and I lived in this all-white world. But... There were kids on the playground, and they liked to bully, and I was the kid that was bullied. I was the one that was picked on. I was the, I was the little scrawny, skinny runt. I know you can't tell it by looking at me now, but <laughs> I, was that, I was that kid they took the lunch money away from. And so I grew up, I, I grew up angry. I was very angry. Uh, I vowed that someday I was going to have power. I didn't know how. But I was going to have power, and I was going to get even with with uh, everybody that picked on me, everyone that ever did anything to me. Well, I went I went through elementary school, and one reason our school stayed as segregated as it was was because my father, who was a businessman, very respected businessman in town, very successful, but he also was a segregationist. Now, he was not a he, he was not a member of the Ku Klux Klan or anything like that, but he believed in keeping uh, the schools segregated, and so he was the one that would sue the school board every year uh, and fight uh, desegregation. Well, that fight went on every single year until finally between my fifth grade and sixth grade. So I'm move, moving out of the elementary end of the building into the middle school. Uh, that's when he lost and the school was desegregated. So now my formerly all white uh, world had just gotten African-American uh, students coming into it. Not a lot, 
maybe 5% of the school, maybe 10% at the most. And this was your first opportunity to get to interact with African-Americans? This was actually the first time, I know it's hard for anyone to believe in this day and age, this was the first time I had ever probably even been in the same vicinity or the same room and actually spoken to a person of color. Wow. Uh, at least another uh, child of color. Yeah. And so I, I looked at this as an opportunity. Maybe, hey, maybe this is the opportunity. Maybe I can be the bully because this is kind of my turf. I've been here five years. I know this place. And I started picking on the African-American kids that were being bussed in from the other end of town. And I started calling them names and taunting them and jeering them. And so much so that by the, uh, by my eighth grade, my eighth grade yearbook, I still have it. It actually uh, says to Richard, grand dragon of the clan, keep those inward in line. I had a, a built a reputation as a racist, uh, because people had heard me talk. Yeah. And so, you know, at that point you're, you've become the bully since, you know, cause you hear this phrase, you know, hurt people, hurt people. So now you're the hurt person who's now hurting African-Americans. And so how does that lead you to becoming a member of the Klan? Well, what I did not know was at least one of those middle school teachers was a secret active member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he or she, I don't even know to this day exactly who it was, but one of them, they were listening to me and they were taking note. And you the said he or she. Watching me. And you said he, he or she. So there are female yeah. members in the Klan. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Uh, we had, when I ran the Klan in Indiana, uh, in my own county, our county clans, uh, my county had so many women that we actually formed a women's uh, group. So they actually had their own meetings, their own leaders, their own groups, because it was just too, it was, it just got too big. Uh, and so we decided to separate the men from the women. So yeah, there, there are, there are plenty of women in the Ku Klux Klan, guarantee you. So this teacher was, was listening to what I was saying and they were reporting back to uh clan headquarters saying, Hey, we better keep an eye on this uh, Richard Harris kid because he might be very useful to us. Uh, one of the days, you know, sometime in the future. And so they were actually watching me and I didn't even know it. And, uh, and so then when I became 16, which was the age that you could become a, a full adult member of the clan, the clan just suddenly kind of appeared in my life. I had no idea at that point that they had been watching me literally for about five years. And there is, you know, stages to the clan. You could be an adult in the clan, but you also, I believe you can also be a kid, right? Right. There's a, a junior clan. We like to call them the kids clan. But yeah, there there was a junior clan. You weren't you, you weren't privy, of course, to all the secrets or anything. Uh, and most of the most of the people in the junior clan were simply mem or children of members of the clan. Uh, but we actually did do recruiting in the uh, 
elementary schools and middle schools to get people indoctrinated, kids indoctrinated early so that when they were 16, then they were just ready to move right on in and become a full-fledged member of the Klan. And this is what people are referring to when we say America was built around systemic racism. Would you agree that the Klan played a factor into why we're still seeing this racial divisiveness in our, in our country? Well, obviously, obviously it started long before the Klan ever came into existence, but Absolutely. the Klan has definitely, definitely helped perpetuate it uh, since the Civil War. Uh, and so, so yes, systemic racism is, is a real thing. Uh, I'm, I'm watching in amazement as many white people are hearing these words for the first time in recent weeks mm -hmm. and they're actually beginning, some of them are actually beginning to say, Hey, there might really be something to this, but yes, it's, it's a very well, uh, it's alive and well, and it's, it's very much a real thing. Yeah. And so here you are 18 and then you become a leader in this organization. How did that become? Well, I joined, I joined the clan when I was 16. They were looking to, they were, they were looking to groom me immediately for some kind of leadership because I was articulate. I was, I was bright. I was a good student. I could, I could carry myself well. And I was a good public speaker. I could get up uh, in front of people and talk, and uh, I could I could hold uh, the attention of the audience. So that made for the possibility of leadership. So they started grooming me for leadership right off the bat. By the time I was 18, uh, I was made the second youngest Grand Dragon in the U.S. clan. I became Dragon at age 18. Uh, David Dukes was kind of my role model down in Louisiana. He's a few years older than me. But he became state. Dragon at age 17. And so, of course, David, educated, articulate, uh, clean-cut looking, that's what they saw in me. And they said, "This, you know, Richard Harris can be our David Dukes only up here in Indiana. And so you're in the leadership position. What was that like? Well, it was, it's, it's not a lot like what a lot of people imagine. Uh, being, being the Grand Dragon means that you're in a lot of meetings and they're not, they, you're, you're planning rallies, you're planning, you're writing a lot of speeches, uh, you're, you're planning a spoke, being a spokesperson uh, and you're also writing a lot of propaganda materials. That's, that was what I spent more time doing was kind of being the spokesperson for the organization and how can I get more recruitment materials out and writing that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of people think that, that they are directing the violence and they may have been back in the 1960s, but this was the 1970s. A lot of my advisors were people who had just gotten out of jail, just gotten out of, they'd been spent so much time in jail uh, for different things. They weren't looking at that. They really weren't looking for that. They were looking for way, how can we keep our leaders out of jail? And, and the only way to do that is to keep them pretty much in the dark. So I spent very little time actually planning out, plotting out, those kinds of things. There were plenty of people in the Klan 
to do that. My job was uh, to be the spokesperson and to persuade people to join. That was our big thing was recruitment. Did you do anything that was criminal back then that you probably would never want to acknowledge or? <laughs> well, people always ask me, uh, did you kill anybody in the clan? You know, me personally, did I kill anyone in the clan? No, I tried, uh, but I wasn't a very good shot. Uh, so there were a couple of times when, when I shot at people, but I wasn't, I wasn't that great of a shot. So, uh, you know, we were involved in, I was involved in some shootouts, but I was never supposed to be involved in those because I was, I was being groomed for leadership. So, uh, you know, did I do anything illegal? Uh, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. I'm sure that I was, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure that things, you know, were done that, that was illegal, but they were very careful to try to keep a lot of the, even the information about things away from me so that I couldn't be brought up on arrested for conspiracy charges. Yeah. They, that would they have been my next question. Do that. you think you should be facing any charges for anything that you were responsible for back then? I don't, I don't, I don't really think so. Uh, simply because they did do such a good job of, of keeping me away from that. I really didn't know much of anything that was going on, uh, even though I was running the Klan because I was just involved in writing the propaganda, that kind of thing. And no one will believe, no one believes that, but that's really the way they were operating then because they had learned the lessons of the 1960s when some of their big leaders ended up getting convicted of things. And so they, they really, they purposely kept me in, in the dark. And that was very frustrating to me because I knew I could sense that things were going on that I didn't know anything about and they wouldn't even tell me about. So here you are, you're part of this well-run machine that it is and something that's still being well-run today. Um, yes. How, how do you get through the process of, hey, I'm this big guy in charge, I'm in leadership, I'm a part of the clan, you know, I, I was bullied, now I'm bullying other people, now you want out, you want something different. How do you, how do you make that transition? Okay. Well, what, what got me to that point was after being in for about four years, you know, I, I was living a life of just hate. I mean, that, that was my life was to, to think up th more things to write and to write speeches and to give those speeches and uh, to make these appearances. And just, I was just throwing out hate uh, all the time. Uh, and that, that, that can wear you down. And, and it was wearing me down. Uh, I was also, I think I was maturing a little bit during that time because I was, I was recognizing, Hey, uh, I've really ruined my life. I mean, this has got, this is my life now. I can't, I will never be a normal, uh, person. I can't just walk away from this. And so by the time I was 20 years old, uh, I, I was getting a little bit tired of it, but then all of a sudden uh, I got word that one of my four armed bodyguards, my security guards had put a hit out on me and mm. he was going to have me assassinated. That'll certainly so get that you then, attention. Yeah. So he could raise up in the rank, rise up in the ranks 
because it would be like a domino effect. It would, you know, if someone, someone would have to be dragging and that would empty up another position of leadership. And so eventually he might get a position of leadership, he thought. So I, I, I was running scared. Uh, I was, I'd already been crying myself to sleep every night, realizing that I had just pretty much destroyed my life. I wanted out, but there was no way out. I decided I would call the Imperial Wizard, the head of the nation, and I would ask him for a national office. That would give me better security, different security, more security. So that that seemed to be a reasonable plan. So I called him. He said the only national office he had that he was looking to uh, fill in the near future was that of the national chaplain of the Klan. And, and a lot, it shocks a lot of people but the clan actually believes that they are the true Christians hmm. and they, they have chaplains and every meeting clan meeting clan meetings are started with scripture reading and prayer and maybe even a clan chaplain uh, giving a sermon. Uh, we did that all the time. So uh, I said, well, I don't know anything about being a chaplain. And he said, just start, start reading the Bible for yourself and start getting some good sounding scripture verses, put them in your speeches, start sounding religious, and I'll take care of everything else. You're going to be the national chaplain of the clan. That's that sounded reasonable to me. I could do that. So that night I went home, I started, uh, found the Bible, dusted it off, uh, and uh, said, okay, I'm going to have to start reading this. I didn't know where to read. I know that now that God was guiding me because I didn't know one book from the other. I turned to the gospel according of, to John and I started reading John and I, and I was excited right, right at the beginning. I was saying, Oh, this is great. These are the stories of Jesus. I found the stories of Jesus. I'll just quote Jesus. You can't sound more religious than quoting Jesus. This will be perfect. This right. is going to be a piece of cake. Started reading John got to John chapter four, and that's when the light bulb went on. John chapter four is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. It's one of the clan's favorite stories. Hmm. The clan chaplains would preach from this. I'd heard many sermons on this, and they were all pretty much the same. Samaritan, they did teach me that correctly. One of the few things they taught me uh, correctly was Samaritan was half Jewish, half Gentile or as they would call it, a race mixer or a half-breed. And that's what they would teach. And there's nothing the Klan hates worse than race mixing. So they're, they're, they would read through the story. Jesus asks the Samaritan woman at the well for a drink. She says, why are you asking me for a drink? You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. And then the Bible says, for Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. And the clan chaplains would literally close the Bible. That was the end of the story reading, and they would start to preach. Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans, race mixers, half-breeds. Well, surely we're smarter than Jews. Jesus but if you are a believer of Christ, you would know that's not a complete mixer. story. If you're a real believer in Christ, yes, you should know that Jesus does not hate race mixers, half-breeds, Samaritans. But we didn't have our Bibles with us at clan meetings, so if that was the end of the story, we figured that was the end of the story. The only thing is I'm reading it for the first time 
for myself. So you began to and see so the I, real story. Yeah. So I'm reading down, you know, and I say, Oh yeah, I know this story. I know this all about Samaritans. I know about this and I'm reading down. And then I realized for the first time, there's more to that story than what they ever told us. And I find out that this Samaritan woman becomes a believer in Jesus. Jesus accepts her. She goes back to her town. She brings out a whole bunch more Samaritans. They become believers. Jesus accepts them. The real meaning of the Samaritan woman at the well story is Jesus loves Samaritans. And that's when the light bulb went on for me. The clan has lied to me. How can they be the true Christians if they are twisting the scriptures so obviously? And so I stayed awake that night. I read the entire gospel of John, kept finding place after place where I could tell they had, they had misquoted, misinterpreted the scriptures. I didn't know how to pray, but I said something like this to God. I said, God, if you can get me out of this alive, I want out and I want to find out what a real Christian is and I want to be one. And that was my prayer. I quit the clan the next day. Couldn't have been that easy now, to get out though, right? It was not easy to get out, but I told them and they became convinced that I was serious about quitting because I wanted to find out what a real Christian was. I, I went to a, ch I went to church. I couldn't just go walking around town without security. I may have said I quit the clan, but the rest of the world, they didn't know I quit the clan. I was still the grand dragon as far as anyone else was concerned. So I took two security guards with me to church. By the end of that day, both of those security guards had quit the clan with me. And so in, in a weekend, basically, they had lost uh, a grand dragon and two security guards. I was a popular grand dragon. They were beginning to wonder, how many more is he going to take with him? So they said, look, we're going to let you out, and we're going to let you live if, and with a gun to my head, they said, if you keep quiet. Keep your mouth shut. We'll let you live. Well, now you're speaking now out about it. So how long did you keep quiet? I kept quiet for 13 years. I went on. I felt called into the ministry. I went to college, studied for the ministry. I became a pastor. I kept quiet for 13 years. And if anyone asked me during those 13 years, hey, weren't you in the clan? You know, I would say yes, you know, and I would talk to them about it and about how God had changed me. But I didn't get on platforms. I didn't publicly, uh, you know, get up and start speaking out because, and the clan pretty much left me alone during that time but because I did. I, when. So when did you start I speaking did. out about it? So I was a senior pastor of a church and I was a part-time professor at Purdue University and a African-American lady who was about 15 years older than me, she was taking my class and halfway through, she came up to me and she asked me, she said, Professor Harris, have you ever heard of a man named Dick Haywood? I said, yeah, Dick Haywood, a lot of people have heard of him. He uh, used to run the Klan here. He was the dragon in Indiana back in the 70s. And she goes, yes, and you're him. I said, yes, I am. That was wow. me. So she, she called said, you well, out, I, man. She called, she called me out, and I said, yep, that was me. 
She said, well, why don't you tell people what God has done for you, how he's changed you and transformed your life? And I said, well, two reasons. One, no one's ever really asked me. And number two, I like living. <laughs> and, and that was the truth. Uh, you know, I had no intentions of actually going out real publicly and saying anything. But then she reached into her bag and she pulled out a flyer that had my picture on it. And it said, former Grand Dragon of the KKK speaks to Purdue University's Student Cultural Society. I said, I'm not doing that. And she said, oh, yes, you are. And I said, that's the Black Student Union. I'm not going to tell the Black Student Union of Purdue, hey, guess what? I was the dragon of the Klan. She said, well, you have to tell them what God has done for you and how he's changed you. If you would have done that today, they would have called for your resignation immediately, especially in this cancel culture. You know that, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they sure would have. Uh, but instead, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, she, what she had done was she had put these flyers out during that hour. People had been putting flyers out. She goes, when you walk out of this classroom, you're, you've got your pictures all over this place. You're going to speak to this group and you're going to tell them what God has done for you. So <laughs> I, so I did, uh, again, long story short, it, it ended up that, uh, that the Associated Press was there. I had no intent. I didn't even realize reporters were there. And the next day, I'm all over all the newspapers in the whole Midwest. Former Grand Dragon of the Indiana Klan denounces racism and the Klan. And boy, that'll that'll change your life quick. Yeah. So, so now, now, I, so now, now I was out. You're out and you're sharing your story and you're your basically your crusade to now help with racial reconciliation. So now here you are, now you're sharing your story to the world. And I've seen a number of interviews with you as well. You know, how have you made that transformation and what has it been like over the last, what, 30 years or so? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been about 30 years that, that I've been out uh, telling people, speaking out. Uh, I wrote a book, uh, about my whole experience. Uh, and so I'm well known now for denouncing the Klan, denouncing racism. Uh, eventually, my bishop, uh, it got too dangerous for me in Indiana. My bishop uh, transferred me down to West Palm Beach, Florida, where, I'm where, where I ended up uh, co-pastoring a Haitian congregation uh, so God has a sense of humor, you know, yes, for the does. former grand dragon of the Klan to be co-pastoring a Haitian congregation. But that was also where I believe even more transformation happened because I was no longer living in my all-white world. Now I was in uh, Hispanic and Haitian uh, island communities and I didn't have a lot of, didn't even know a lot of white people. I knew far more people of color than I did white people. And uh, so I, I, I really began to, to get rid of some of the more unconscious bias. Uh, I, I believe God really did a, a major work on me down there. Then I got transferred up to uh, pastor and all white 
uh, church in Lakeland, Florida. Mm -hmm. And this church had been around for 85 years. I looked at it and said, I don't want my children to be raised in an all white world the way I was. I want multiculturalism. I want it to be the way God, I believe, intended for it to be. Right. And so I brought in the first black, uh, the first black members into that church. I brought in the first Hispanic members into that church. And I tried to create, uh, you know, more of a multicultural church. It's not easy. I'll tell you that right now. It's not easy to transform uh, a church that has been all one race into a multicultural church. It's not easy. It's not easy. But I stuck with that church for uh, 18 years and then eventually stepped down as senior pastor. At that point, I was actually... um, working full time as a professor at a local university. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't do, I couldn't keep doing both. And so I'd been there 18 years, decided, okay, I think it's time to set step down. I stepped down out of the pulpit and it wasn't, it was less than a year, about a year or so, uh, before I was invited to join the staff of a historic African-American church who'd been around for 130 plus years And the senior pastor uh, asked me to come and join his staff because he believed in the idea of multiculturalism. And I was the first white pastor uh, on staff in that church. And I'm still there. It's been five or six years now. And I enjoy my new church family. And it has been a growth process for me. And more than anything, I've been able to experience firsthand not only the forgiveness of God, but I've been able to experience the forgiveness of uh, of my black congregation and the love uh, that they have. And I, it, it's a great model uh, for all of our churches for that. So now here you are. Um, you've been through this entire process. Obviously, people will have questions for you like, you know, how can you just magically say you went? from being a racist to now you consider yourself as a gracist. Um, here's a viewer question for you. What, one person asked, would you being a former member of a hate group, is there ever a temptation to fall back into your old ways? I can honestly say that, that I have never been tempted to go back. And I think part of that, part of the reason was because I was so frustrated when I found out how much they had lied to me uh, that I was so angry with them that that I just, you know, I, I, I wanted nothing to do with them. And I just hoped that they would leave me alone and I was going to leave them alone. And, you know, everyone always asks, well, did you go back and try to, uh, you know, try to convert uh, some of the... No, uh, I was told to stay away if I wanted to live, and I truly believed that they were serious, uh, and so I stayed away from them, and they stayed away from me. They were actually, you know, not antagonistic as long as I kept my mouth shut. But things changed once I started uh, speaking out against that. So no, I really haven't been. Uh, I haven't. I have no temptation uh, to go back to that hatred. Uh, it is so draining, uh, and and 
instead, you know, a life of, of love and forgiveness and acceptance is, is so, uh, I don't know, strengthening to me, uh, as opposed to draining. Yes. Another question from a viewer is about systemic racism. They say, um, you know, they would ask if a former member knew other members that were uh, teachers and policemen. And you obviously shared the story of, you know, a teacher uh, of your school being a member of the KKK. But do you believe that, you know, racial bias and the way African-Americans are policed in society today has something to do with the systemic racism and ties to groups like the KKK? Oh, absolutely. Uh, There were police officers uh, in the Klan, active in the Klan when I was was in the Klan. Not not a lot, not a lot by any stretch of the imagination. And we didn't trust them. Uh, we held them kind, even though they were members, we held them kind of at arm's length. We didn't really know whether we could trust them too much. So they didn't get in on a lot of the secrecy. Uh, we purposely designed things so that they wouldn't know a lot of stuff. But the the problem was not the few members that were actually card-carrying full-fledged members of the Klan. The problem was there were a lot of other police officers that we knew were friendly towards our ideas, and they would help us out in a pinch. And we could go to them and we could expect to get treated pretty, pretty, uh, well, unfairly, actually, but, you know, we could expect them to treat us very well. Uh, and so there were plenty of them, but you know, it's not just police. I always get out. It always amazes me when a story comes out that, Oh, three firefighters were uh, found out to be members of, uh, you know, the Nazis or the Klan or something. And people are just amazed. Oh, they are shocked. And to me, it's like, um, it's not shocking because there are people in every profession, we had doctors, we had lawyers, we had judges uh, in our back pocket that were either members of the Klan. We had business owners. I mean, everything you could imagine uh, were, had connections to the Klan. And if they were not actual members of the Klan, they were friends and supporters of the Klan, and we knew who they were. And I think that's what makes it tough for uh, you know blacks to to just get over this idea that, you know, all is well here in America when we know that this racism still exists and there are still people who are part of the Klan who may actually be in the very systems that we occupy every single day. And- that's, that's very true. And, and I think that's e- even more uh, disconcerting uh, are not the actual members of the Klan, but it's the pervasiveness mm-hmm. of of racism, of racial bias uh, in our society. And I, I maintain that no matter what race you are, you cannot grow up in America and not have racial bias. Uh, I, I, I've seen it even with some of the members of my black congregation. I've heard them say things that I'm, I, I just makes me cringe. And it's like, no, you've bought into stereotypes. You have been, you know, trained by the media. Uh, you know, we've been brought up on this. We've seen commercials, we've seen ads, and you're buying in, into some of this. 
What about and white so privilege? I, I guarantee you white people are buying in into it uh, because it's just that's our society and it needs to change. White privilege, white privilege is real, but so many white people have they have trouble understanding white privilege because they they look at themselves and say, oh, well, you know, I've worked hard for everything I've got and, you know, I'm not all that rich. I'm kind of, I'm poor uh, or I'm just low middle class. So I don't have any privilege. A lot of white privilege is not so much what you have, but it's what you don't have to put up with. Uh, you know, I get up in the morning. I don't ever have to worry about, well, am I going to make it to work? You know, am I, am if I get pulled over by a cop, uh, am I in danger? I don't, I don't worry about that. White people don't need to worry about that. Uh, I don't worry about if I go into a restaurant, well, you know, am, am I going to get served or are they going to treat me badly? Uh, because of the color of my skin. We, white people don't have to worry about it. White people don't have to have those uh, discussions with their kids about uh, do this, don't do that, do this, look this way, don't do that, be polite, do this. We don't have to tell our kids things like that because they're not, they're not in danger of being uh, shot or something like that, you know, by, by, uh, by someone. They're not, you know, so that's a lot of what, what privilege is. Uh, and the fact that, you know, you can just look at the numbers. Uh, if you're, if you're white, you, you have more opportunity to get the chances are better. If you're applying for a job to get, you know, called in for an interview, uh, you can just look at the, the statistics out there and it's very clear. The one thing I, I would say is, that in the last month or so, there are probably more white people in this country that are actually waking up and beginning to see that white privilege really does exist. Uh, I don't think they know what to do with it, but I think that they are actually beginning to, some of them are actually beginning to say, yeah, there might be something to this systemic racism. I have another viewer question, and this person asks, what can uh, you do to form a bridge between hurt black people and racist white people? You know, relationships is what it's going to have to boil down to. And people are, are most comfortable with people who look like them, think like them, speak like them, uh, have their own the same lifestyle. We're more comfortable. We've got to get out of our comfort zone. Uh, it, it's time to actually intentionally reach across the racial boundaries and begin to make friends, real friendships, uh, not just acquaintances or being a colleague with someone, but actual real f friendships. This is what I understood that we needed to model this for my own children. Otherwise, would they grow up to be the same as what I grew up to be? Uh, we want to model. I, will, I purposely set out to model uh, the fact that when we went on family vacation, oftentimes it, we would share a, we would go with a black family. Uh, there would, it was normal. The new normal is 
that when I'm shooting pool in my billiards room in my home, uh, there are Hispanic uh, people, there are Asian uh, people in there with me. These are my friends. These, this is the new normal, and I purposely wanted them to see that that you know the self segregation that we tend to do was not acceptable. Yeah, because racism is not so much that it's taught, it's caught. As you mentioned earlier in your conversation with your dad and your parents or whatever, not necessarily uh, saying, hey, we don't talk to black people, but it was implied because that's the way you saw things. Another view of question that I have, and this will be the last one as we wrap up this interview is, with you being a former leader of a hate group, is there ever temptation for you to fall into old sin? And how do you hold yourself accountable to that? I don't. I don't know. I've experienced so much of God's grace over the last 42 years. Uh, I That's just not a temptation for me. Uh, how do I hold myself accountable? Well, for one thing, I, uh, I, I talk about race. You know, most, most white people don't talk about race because they don't have to. And it makes them feel uh, uncomfortable. Have, yeah, it makes them feel uncomfortable. They don't know what to say. So they just, you know, they just don't ever have to deal with it. And uh, I purposely, you know, deal with it because obviously I'm, I'm a pastor in a black congregation. So uh, we talk, we talk about, about race. I feel comfortable after, you know, talking about these things. And I also feel comfortable saying, I, did I, if I say this, does that sound is that not right? Is there a better way to say it? You know, I'm a communication professor, so I, uh, I'm very concerned about how we communicate with each other. So and you have to have that humility for, and empathy, right? Humility and empathy. Yes. I, I will never know what it's like to be, to grow up as a person of color in this country. I will never, I, I cannot ever know that. However, I can try to understand, and I can have empathy uh, as I learn more, and as I communicate more, and as, as I build uh, those bridges uh, and get to know uh, people better, I can begin to have a little bit of empathy, so that hopefully I can I can be a better person myself. Dr. Richard C. Harris, thanks for joining me on the Staying the Course podcast. What are some ways that people can stay connected with you, you know, your website, uh, where people can purchase your book and uh, social media as well? Sure. My, my book is uh, available on Amazon as well as Audible. Uh, <clears throat> if you'd like to listen to me, read it uh, to you. And uh, so it's called One Nation Under Curse, One Nation Under Curse. Uh, and uh, you'll take a deep dive uh, into the inner workings of a white supremacist organization by, by reading that. Uh, and then also my website is harrisspeaks.com, harrisspeaks.com, and you can find out more about me. Also something uh, that's coming up, uh, you can connect with me, obviously contact me through that website, but uh, also something coming up that I'm working on is... Uh, uh, one of my colleagues who is, uh, we have taught, uh, team taught a course at the university on interracial communication, and we're working on putting uh, some aspects of that course uh, into a course uh, online, and you'll be hearing more about that on my website as well.
Um, Dr. Harris, can you leave us with the quote that you live by every single day? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, years ago, I adopted this as, as kind of my life quote. If it is not justice for all, it is not justice at all. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Dr. Richard C. Harris, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.